your Bible with you, I'd ask you to open it up to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to reread the same text this morning as we looked at last Lord's Day. With God's help, we're going to complete the second part of our message on church unity from verses 10 to 17. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. Remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May the Lord add His blessing to this reading of His Word. If you were with us last week, you'll remember we spent the entire morning looking at verse 10, in particular examining Paul's instruction in that verse on this important but often misunderstood subject of Christian unity. We see here in our text that Paul has received a discouraging report about the state of the church in Corinth which had fallen prey to division and a partisan spirit a lack of cooperation among the believers that was threatening to destroy the church and to ruin their gospel witness in that city. And things were getting so tense in Corinth that a woman named Chloe had sent some representatives to Paul to debrief him on the situation and perhaps to encourage him to take action before it was too late and the work of God in this church was destroyed. And so what follows here in verse 10 all the way down to the end of chapter 4 is Paul's effort to address the subject of church unity and to deal with the specific issues these Corinthians were wrestling with. Issues, by the way, that we still wrestle with today in one form or another. Issues that we will continue to wrestle with as long as we live between the now of God's kingdom and the not yet of God's kingdom, as long as we live in this age of tension where we struggle against a sin nature that has been defeated by Christ, but not altogether destroyed. The book of Ephesians in the passage we read earlier speaks about a coming day when we will all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But for the time being, the church militant, the church here on earth will continue to struggle with pride, with division, with competing interpretations of God's holy and inspired Word. And unfortunately, these are issues that sometimes prevent us from experiencing the perfect unity, the perfect love, the perfect peace that will one day exist in God's kingdom, where there will be no more denominations, no more divisions, no more schisms within the church, but rather perfect unity under the Lordship of Christ and the authority of Christ. As long as we continue to live in this world, we will continue to wrestle and struggle when it comes to unity. But that struggle should not prevent us from doing everything we can in the power of God's Spirit to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Because we know and we believe as Christians what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so, friends, while we lament the fact that there will be no perfect unity until Christ returns, we do not abandon or neglect our Christian duty to maintain the unity that God has created by calling us, verse 9, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Unnecessary disunity and division and quarreling within the Christian family deeply grieves our Father in Heaven to whom we all belong, and more than that, It ruins our witness for the gospel in this world because it contradicts the very faith that we profess to believe. And so the Apostle Paul speaks into the reality of our brokenness and our imperfection and our pride with the admonition that we looked at last week in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Three times in that one verse, Paul repeats the same basic instruction. First of all, emphasizing that we Christians should agree that we should say the same thing. Secondly, reminding us that there should be no divisions or schisms within the church. And thirdly, restating for the sake of emphasis that we should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Very clearly, Paul values unity in the church. And if Paul and the Holy Spirit value unity to the extent that this command is repeated three times in one verse. It should be clear, brothers and sisters, that you and I should value it too. That you and I should do all that we possibly can through the power of the Spirit to put this instruction in practice as we interact with one another in the local church and as we interact with believers across denominational lines, across ethnic lines, and across cultural lines in the church universal. Because we who belong to Christ are members of one body, We are members of one family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we saw last week, there is more to the story when it comes to unity and a great deal of teaching on this subject throughout the New Testament. And as we've seen, there are some essential limits, some essential boundaries on Christian unity and a few common misunderstandings of what Paul is actually telling us here when he tells the church to agree and to be united in the same mind and judgment. As we learned last week, Paul is not teaching us that we all need to share the same opinions and preferences when it comes to matters of food and dress and culture. Nor is he teaching us in this verse to associate with so-called Christians who have denied the essential doctrines of the faith. Nor is he teaching us here that there's not an appropriate time to confront another Christian who's fallen into error. Nor is he teaching us that we should avoid controversial subjects just because they have the potential to make us feel uncomfortable, to upset us. There are many ways in which Paul's general teaching on unity have been misunderstood and misapplied by well-meaning Christians, as though Paul is advocating some kind of lowest common denominator Christianity devoid of doctrine, or else that he is advocating some kind of domineering legalism that requires us to slavishly follow man-made rules and traditions. We must avoid both of these extremes, brothers and sisters, as we apply Paul's instruction on unity, recognizing that unity is not something we create artificially. Rather, unity is something God creates supernaturally through the miracle of regeneration and something that we who know Christ are called to earnestly maintain. 
And so we recognize as Christians, there must be unity on the essential doctrines of the faith. There should be liberty on the non-essential matters. And in all things, there must be charity and love, whether or not we agree with one another. This is the way that God has designed his church to function in a broken, fallen world. And when Paul makes this appeal in verse 10 for the Corinthians to be united in the same mind and judgment, he is speaking to us at the level of top-tier essential doctrine without which there can be no unity at all. When it comes to the essential doctrines of our faith, biblical beliefs such as the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the personhood of the Spirit and the substitutionary atonement, and the bodily resurrection, and the future bodily return. On issues like these, there can be no diversity of opinion within the church, and there can be absolutely no compromise. Because if you compromise any of those top-tier doctrines, you are simply not a Christian, no matter what you call yourself, and no matter whether you are affiliated with a church or not. And if you're not a Christian who is united to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone, there is, quite frankly, no basis for Christian unity and fellowship. In fact, we saw last time, Paul's instruction elsewhere in the New Testament says we are to separate ourselves from such false believers, and if possible, to evangelize them, to win them to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Well, that's about as far as we got last time. And now that we've established the true nature of biblical unity, the limits and the boundaries that ought to guard and to govern and to frame Christian unity, we can move on today to look at the specific dysfunction that was taking place in the Corinthian church. And that dysfunction is described for us in verses 11 to 17. What becomes obvious as we read through these verses, the negative report that came to Paul through Chloe and her representatives is that a partisan spirit had infected the Corinthian church. The church had begun to quarrel with one another, to divide into a number of different factions and cliques that were represented by various leaders. Men who are well known to the Corinthians, who are well known to the larger body of Christ in Greece and Asia Minor. It was, for example, the Paul party and the Apollos party, the Cephas party, even the Christ party, which may seem a bit odd at first glance. There were different little groups and factions within the church that were declaring allegiance to their favorite teacher and were grounding their identity in the name of that teacher rather than finding their identity in Christ himself. Before we describe the various groups and leaders mentioned here in the text by Paul, it's important for us to understand a bit about the cultural and the historical context of ancient Corinth some of the factors that may have contributed to this competition and disunity in the first century church. The first thing about the historic context we need to understand is that the church in Corinth was structured differently than many of our churches today in the sense that the church in that city was so large that not all of the believers were able to gather regularly at the same time and in the same location. Today the practice we've grown accustomed to is to meet for corporate worship in designated buildings and when we outgrow one of those buildings, we usually tear it down and build a bigger one. It's a practice that the church has maintained since the 3rd century, owning property and meeting in designated buildings. But back in the 1st century, when Paul lived and wrote this letter, Christians typically met for worship in private homes that were owned by wealthy members of the church. Originally, there would have been a single house church in Corinth that met for worship under the leadership of Paul, 
But as the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved, they would have outgrown the house and eventually there would have been a network of house churches led by qualified elders and pastors, men gifted by God and trained up by Paul to govern the church as a whole in the city and to teach and preach the word of God. A little bit later in chapter 14, 16 and also Romans 16, Paul makes a few comments that suggest there was a decentralized structure in Corinth a collection of house churches that were led by a variety of teachers in a variety of locations. It doesn't take much imagination to see how this kind of decentralized structure could lend itself to partisan divisions and to competition and to comparison and to feelings of superiority. The decentralized structure of the early church probably fostered some of the disunity Paul needs to address in these verses, but beyond that was a distinctive culture of ancient Greece and Rome which differs in some way from our modern North American culture. The ancient world of Paul and the apostles was a very hierarchical society with sharp divisions between the rich and the poor, sharp distinctions between the slave and the free. In ancient Corinth, the class system was alive and well. It was a prominent part of Greek and Roman society. Far greater class distinctions than we experience in our modern democracies where everyone, at least in principle, is entitled to an equal say. And in this ancient culture of Corinth, it was common practice for wealthy and influential citizens of high social standing to become patrons to citizens of lower social standing and for those in the lower classes to align themselves with a person of influence so that they would receive a benefit of some kind in exchange for their honor and their respect and their loyalty to that person. This system of patronage might sound a bit odd to us today, but it was the way things worked in the ancient world. The way to advance your interests in society was to align yourself with a man of influence and to publicly declare your allegiance with that patron. As some Bible scholars have noted, it is very likely that these ideas from the surrounding culture made their way into the church in Corinth so that certain leaders and teachers were viewed by the laity as patrons who could be used for their own selfish gain, for self-advancement, for self-promotion in the church. You see, in every generation, in every culture, there is a temptation for the church to be influenced by the value system of the culture, and the early church was no exception to this. In a culture that was based on hierarchy and social standing, the institution of slavery and the class system, it was neither easy nor was it natural for people to come into a community like the church where everyone stood on level ground, where everyone was supposed to relate to one another as brothers and sisters and as equals, as members of the same family, whether they be Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And as we all know from personal experience, Old patterns that are deeply ingrained in the mind and the heart tend to die hard. They have a tendency to rear their ugly head at some times, to make their way back into our lives, and even to make their way into the church. That seems to be what was happening here in Corinth. The class system, the ancient practice of patronage, was being brought into the Christian church, and as a result, the loyalty of the members in that church was being divided and misplaced under the influence of sin and a desire for self-promotion and self-advancement. Sinful pride was gaining a foothold in their assembly, and instead of fighting together for a common cause under the banner of Christ and the gospel, the Christians in Corinth had started to fight against one another, and to compete with one another, and to divide from one another. 
We look at the different leaders that are mentioned here in the text in verse 12 as representatives of the warring factions. We may be tempted at first to assume that some of the dissension, some of the division in the church was coming from the top down. Perhaps Paul and Cephas and Apollos were at odds with one another. These men were competing with each other to gain a popular following, that they were using the gospel as a way of a personal advancement, that they were undermining the unity of the church. Sadly, this is something that's all too common today in the church of Christ and in every generation. Unscrupulous leaders and pastors who use the pulpit, who use their leadership platform as a way to become popular, as a way to accumulate wealth, a way to take some of the glory that rightfully belongs to Christ. Paul mentions some leaders like this in the book of Philippians, talking about church leaders who were pleased that he was behind bars so they could finally make a name for themselves in his absence. Men who were preaching the gospel out of a motive of rivalry and contention and pride. But when it comes to these three men who are mentioned here in verse 12, there is no question about the purity of their character and their motives. These three men, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, were of one mind and heart when it came to the gospel. There is absolutely no evidence that these men were competing with one another or that they were engaging in the kind of sinful one-upmanship that we sometimes see in the church. Now Paul, who's mentioned there in verse 12 as a representative of one of the warring factions, is known to us as the author of this letter and as the founder of the church in Corinth. We mentioned a few weeks ago in the introduction, it was Paul who first established the church in Corinth. It was Paul who remained in the city for a year and a half, preaching the gospel of grace, training up qualified leaders for the church. And as you can well imagine, a number of people in the Corinthian church looked to Paul the Apostle with great affection and great gratitude because he was the man who first led them to the Lord. He was the man who gave them a solid grounding in the gospel. I'm sure that many of us here in this room feel the same way when we think back on that pastor, that youth leader, that Sunday school leader who first led us to Christ. The person who took you under their wing when you were just starting off as a baby Christian. We're humans. It's only natural for us to feel that way, to feel a special affection for men and women who've made an impact on our lives. And I have a hunch that some of these Corinthians were card-carrying members of the Paul fan club. Christians who wanted to fly under Paul's banner and to be associated with his name as the founding pastor of their church and as the man who first introduced them to Christ. Another name in this list of leaders is Cephas, who's better known to us by his Greek name, Peter. And Peter, of course, was one of the twelve disciples of Christ, by all accounts the most prominent member of that group, along with James and John. Peter wasn't a perfect man by any means. He had a tendency to get his foot stuck in his mouth. As we know, there were times in Peter's ministry when he stumbled and failed, most notably before the crucifixion when he denied Christ three times. Later on, there was an occasion when Paul needed to reprimand him for some behavior that was not in step with the gospel of grace. We spoke a bit about that last week. But in spite of Peter's flaws and imperfections, he was a good and godly man who deeply loved the Lord. A man who was always quick to take the initiative in the things of Christ, to speak up for the sake of the gospel. Ultimately, he was a man who gave his life for the sake of the gospel. In the earliest days of the church, after the great ingathering of Pentecost, 
Peter served as the main pastor in Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that he became acquainted with Paul and recognized that Paul, the former terrorist, had been transformed by the gospel of God's grace, that he had been called and commissioned to be an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. After that, Peter's ministry was primarily to the Jews. Paul's ministry was primarily to the Gentiles. But there is no hint, no suggestion that these men were at odds with one another or that they disagreed with each other on matters of doctrine. Quite to the contrary. In fact, later on in his second epistle, Peter will tell us under divine inspiration that Paul's writings are part of the inspired Scripture. Now in terms of Peter's ministry, we know from the book of Acts he eventually left Jerusalem and church tradition tells us that he was crucified by the Romans under Nero. But what's unclear in the Scripture is whether or not Peter spent time in Corinth, whether he was a pastor there or whether he was just well-known and well-respected by the believers in the church in the city. In terms of Peter's specific relationship with the Corinthians, all we can really do is guess and speculate, but regardless of whether he actually served as a pastor in that church, some of the people in the church knew him and viewed him as the most important apostle, possibly as a man who in their estimation was even greater than Paul. It's also likely that Jewish Christians in Corinth felt a special affinity for Peter because of his association with the church in Jerusalem and his tendency to maintain the Jewish customs. And so we have in Corinth a group of Christians, most likely Jewish Christians, who identified themselves with Peter and with Peter's ministry. Well, the third leader who is mentioned here in verse 12 is a man named Apollos. And of all the names that are mentioned here in this verse, Apollos is probably the least familiar for most of us. Unlike Peter and Paul, Apollos was not an apostle of Christ. But like Paul, Apollos did serve as a pastor in the Corinthian church and as a powerful preacher of the gospel. But unlike Paul, who was not formally trained in rhetoric, who was not particularly impressive as a public speaker, Apollos came from the city of Alexandria, one of the main intellectual centers in the ancient world. Apollos was an extremely intelligent and well-educated man, for we read in Acts 18, he was eloquent, he was competent in handling the Jewish Scriptures. We're also told in the book of Acts that Apollos was a powerful debater who could demolish the arguments of his Jewish opponents who could show from their own Scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ and the Messiah of God. Now to be sure, when Paul first met Apollos in the city of Ephesus, there were some problems with his theology. There were some deficiencies in his teaching and his understanding. But the potential for ministry was evident to all, and two of Paul's associates named Aquila and Priscilla took him under their wing and helped him to understand the way of God more accurately. In other words, they discipled him. And from that point forward, Apollos became a potent and powerful influence for Christ a man who pastored the church in Corinth when Paul had left, a man who used his tremendous speaking ability for the glory of God and the extension of the gospel. Now in a Greek city like Corinth, where rhetoric was prized and valued, many of the intellectuals, many of the Greek Gentiles in the church were attracted to Apollos and considered themselves to be his loyalists. He wasn't an apostle like Peter was and like Paul was, but when it came to preaching and eloquence and public speaking, he surpassed both of them. He was a marvelous preacher. And so these are the three parties mentioned there in verse 12. 
the Jewish Christians who gravitated towards Peter, the founding members of the church who had a soft spot for Paul, the intellectual Greeks who were greatly attracted to Apollos and greatly impressed by his eloquence. But what do we make of the fourth party mentioned there in verse 12? The group that was claiming to follow Christ and were openly declaring their allegiance to Him in distinction with the other groups. Because normally we would consider this kind of loyalty to be good, to be right, to be biblical. Something that should be true of each and every person who claims the name of Christ and calls himself a Christian. But obviously in this specific context, Paul is not commending them for their professed allegiance to Christ. He's rebuking them. He's reprimanding them along with the other factions who are fighting and quarreling and dividing from one another. The mention of this Christ party seems very confusing on the surface because the name of Christ doesn't seem to fit well with the other names. But if you've been around the church for any length of time, there's a good chance you've already encountered a few representatives of this tribe because they are still with us in the church today. The Christ faction of the church claims that they follow no man. They claim that they adhere to no system of theology. They subscribe to no written creed other than what they themselves have personally gleaned from Bible study, believing that they are the ones in the church who are truly biblical, that they are the ones who are truly untainted by all man-made theology. Adherents of the Christ tribe are often suspicious of theology and theologians They see themselves as the unbiased, objective proclaimers and guardians of biblical truth. Members of this party tend to be anti-authority. They tend to be very independent. Avoiding church membership if they can. Denying that they should be held accountable by any human authority other than Jesus Christ Himself. And tragically, these brothers and sisters tend to bounce around from church to church to church, always looking for biblical teaching that's as free from theological bias as they are, but never being able to find quite what they're looking for. As we turn from the description of these parties and think about the implications of this, of the implications of the infighting in the church of Corinth, the implications of this text for our contemporary context in the 21st century, I want to challenge a popular understanding of this passage. I'm convinced misses Paul's point and misses the original intent in writing it. A very common way to apply this text in our own time, in our own modern context, is to take the various factions that existed within the Corinthian church and to equate those factions with the numerous theological divisions and denominational labels that we have today within the Christian church. And so back in the first century, there was the Apollos party and the Peter party and the Paul party. And now in the 21st century, we have the Calvinist party and the Lutheran party and the Wesleyan party and the Arminian party and the Mennonite party and many other parties. And so the argument goes, if it was sinful back in Corinth to associate yourself with a church leader and to identify yourself with that person's name and teaching, it is still sinful to do so today. And the thing we ought to do in response to a text like this is to repent of our divisiveness by eliminating denominations, by forsaking all of our theological labels, by seeking to reform the Protestant church along non-denominational lines. And so the Baptists should drop the word Baptist, and the Lutherans should drop the word Lutheran, and the Wesleyans should drop the word Wesleyan. And if we all do that in cooperation with one another, all of our theological differences will simply fade off into the sunset. 
So we'll stop calling ourselves Rosedale Baptist Church. We'll start calling ourselves Rosedale Community Church. And by so doing, we will be obeying Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians 1. We will be working towards church unity. Now that's a very popular way of looking at the passage. But we need to stop and to ask ourselves, is that really what Paul is saying here? Is that really a legitimate interpretation of this text and application to our modern situation and context? Now at this point, I will freely admit there's something valuable we can glean from that way of thinking. I think the heart behind it is good and right, even though the application itself is wrong and not particularly helpful for the church. And so listen carefully, friend. It is good and it is right for us to recognize that the church of Christ is larger than our own local fellowship. It is larger than our own denomination. It is larger than our own theological tradition and tribe. Spoke a little bit about that last week. You know, for various reasons, I identify as a Baptist. I'm not going to make apologies for that. But the fact remains, I'm a Christian before I'm a Baptist. As I've said before from this pulpit, I am a big C Christian, I'm a little b Baptist. And what that means in a practical sense is that I view other born-again Christians from different denominations and traditions as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I view them as members of my own family, men and women who I'll have the opportunity and the privilege of spending eternity with. And because we're members of one spiritual family called the Universal Church, there's a longing in our hearts for the kind of unity we'll one day experience in the kingdom. That's a good thing. That's a good longing. God has put the desire for unity in our hearts. But, let me say to you at the same time this morning, there is a certain naivety in thinking that the removal of a theological label or a denominational title will eliminate the very real, very legitimate differences that those labels describe and define. There's a popular school of thought among some evangelicals today that it is sinful for us to speak in this terms. It is sinful for us to call, yourself, call ourselves a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Lutheran or a Wesleyan or whatever the term may be because that's what the Corinthians were doing in the first century. There's a problem with this line of reasoning, friends, and we should all note it very well. Understand from the text, in Corinth, the differences between Apollos and Peter and Paul were not theological in nature. You must understand that. If you don't understand that, if you don't observe that, you will miss the point of this text. When it came to issues of theology and Bible interpretation, Paul and Apollos and Peter were on the same page. They were of one mind. These men did not have contradictory views on baptism. They agreed on predestination. They agreed on the Lord's Supper. They agreed on the return of Christ. But guess what? We do have differences on those matters in the church today. And those differences have been with us for hundreds of years. That's the reason why we have theological labels. That's the reason why we have denominational titles that did not exist in the first century. Now, we may not like that, but that's reality. That's the reality that we're stuck with. Christians who are united on the essentials that are not always united on matters of secondary importance. And even if we were to stop using the theological and denominational labels that have developed throughout the centuries, the differences that lie underneath of those labels are not simply going to vanish and go away. 
Like it or not, brothers and sisters, some differences of interpretation are legitimate. They are here to stay until Christ returns to set things straight. And given this kind of situation, we cannot avoid describing those differences and labeling them in some way. And so, friends, don't come to this text and think that just because someone uses a theological label like Calvinist or Arminian or Wesleyan, that they are automatically committing the sin of Corinth and following men instead of following Christ. Some of us are pretty put off by labels like that. I can understand that. But usually, generally speaking, these labels are just a way for us to define and distinguish varying interpretations of the Scripture. It's a type of theological shorthand that enables us to summarize a position in a single word rather than describing that position in a ten-page essay. And so, brothers and sisters, the proper application of the text in 1 Corinthians 1 is not to get rid of denominations and theological labels, but rather to examine our hearts and to get rid of the ugly sectarian attitude that is sometimes lurking there under the surface. Denominations, theological labels are not necessarily wrong and sinful, but if we find ourselves despising fellow Christians because we disagree with them on secondary issues, there's a problem in the heart that needs to be dealt with. And that's the application point in the text. Not the elimination of labels and denominations, but the elimination of spiritual pride and sinful arrogance from the human heart and from our churches. The disunity that plagued the Corinthian church was not the result of theological disagreements between Paul and Apollos and Peter. It was the result of misplaced loyalty to these men because of personalities and gifts that set them apart from one another. Loyalty to Christ was being replaced by loyalty to teachers and leaders in the church. And Paul tackles now this needless disunity and schism by asking them three rhetorical questions we find in verse 13. First of those questions, Paul uses the imagery of a human body and he asks the church in Corinth whether the body of Christ is divided. Whether they think it's possible for this little group over here to have the arms of Christ, for that little group over there to have the legs of Christ, to divide Christ up and to disperse Him among the little factions in the church so that each little group gets a little piece of Christ. And of course, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Christ's body cannot be divided into pieces and neither can the local church be divided into pieces. It must function as a single body, as a single unit with many parts, or it will not function at all. And later on in the same epistle, Paul will pick up the image. He will use the image of a body to teach these believers what a healthy church ought to be when the various parts are working together in perfect harmony and unity for a common purpose and a common goal. Well, the second question Paul asks the church in verse 13 is whether they believe that Paul was crucified for them. It would appear that a group of Corinthians who claim Paul as their leaders thought that they were doing Paul a favor by parading around under his name, but obviously Paul was not impressed and he was not flattered by this kind of behavior. If anything, he was embarrassed by it. He was angered by it. Paul's entire ministry from the beginning to the end was focused on glorifying Jesus Christ. He was appalled. He was taken aback when the Corinthians, that they would even dream of taking some of the glory that belonged to Christ alone and ascribing that glory to Him because He preached the Gospel and because He founded their church. 
Some of these Corinthians were treating Paul as though he was an equal, even greater than the Savior himself. And in response to the blasphemy of that, he points them back to the only person who can truly save, the only one who died on Calvary's cross to make a full atonement for sin, dying in our place for our sins, paying the the penalty that we owed to God that His justice required of us. Yes, Paul may have preached the Gospel to these believers in the church, but he certainly didn't save them. He certainly didn't die in their place. Well, the third and final question Paul asks these believers is whether they were baptized into the name of Paul. And once again, the answer to that question is no. When the Corinthians were baptized as new believers, they were baptized into the name of Christ. And indeed, that's the only name into which a Christian can be baptized. There's a lot I'd like to say this morning about water baptism, the way it was being abused and misused in Corinth, but time is running short. We won't have time to deal with all the issues here in the text this morning. But understand this about baptism. When a person repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for salvation, the very first step of obedience that person needs to take is to be baptized in water as a sign that they are now identified with Christ in His death and His resurrection. The ordinance of baptism does not save us. It does not wash away our sins. But it does visibly signify our union with Christ. It does publicly express the fact that we now belong to Him. That we bear His name. In water baptism, the most important thing is always our identification with Christ. But in Corinth, the most important thing about baptism was the person who was doing the baptizing. Shocking as it may sound, these Christians were far more concerned about which pastor was putting them under the water than they were about what the ordinance itself signified. And the practice of baptism in Corinth had degenerated into a symbol of patronage, a sign of party loyalty, rather than an identification of the believer with Christ. And Paul tells these Corinthian Christians, it is not important who does the baptizing, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Peter, What is important is is the name into which they were baptized. By the way, don't get the impression from this text that Paul is deprecating the ordinance of baptism or that he's suggesting here that baptism is not very important or that it's optional for the true Christian. What Paul is doing in these verses is putting baptism in its proper place and perspective, reminding them what baptism is really about. Not an ordinance that saves us. Not an ordinance that washes away our sin. Not an ordinance that associates us with the pastor who put us under the water, but an ordinance that speaks beautifully and powerfully about our union with Christ in His death and His resurrection. If you're here this morning and you've never been baptized in water as a Christian believer, I would love to talk with you more about what baptism means and why the Bible teaches that every born-again Christian should be immersed in water. Underneath the division and disunity in ancient Corinth were some rather unique cultural issues and factors, but as we all know, disunity in the Christian church was not just a first century problem, it's a 21st century problem. Because the human heart hasn't changed. The passage we've been studying these past two Sundays raises some important and challenging issues that each one of us needs to carefully consider as we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace here at Rosedale and also in the wider body of Christ in Welland and beyond. 
Part of the problem in Corinth had to do with divided loyalties and impure motives. A situation where loyalty to certain leaders and teachers in the church was taking the place of the believer's supreme loyalty to Christ. May I say to you this morning that is still a danger for the church in our culture of celebrity pastors and megachurches. All of us, myself included, must carefully evaluate our loyalties and our motives before the Lord to make sure that we're more eager to be identified with the Lord Jesus in His death and resurrection than we are to be identified with our favorite Bible teacher or our favorite denomination. Of course, we know that ultimately the root cause of bickering and quarreling in the church is sin and pride and worldliness, as James tells us in his epistle. Sobering words that I'm going to leave you with this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Amen.